All right. Good morning. I am Kelly, and I'm so glad that you are here. And today we are going to talk about menopause. Jess, you want to listen? You want to come in? You have a, a strong opinion? Um, so raise your hands if you have questions or use the chat box or anything. And we'll get going. Okay, so I wanted to start with my story of why a urologist knows a lot about menopause. Um, I'm assuming you guys can hear me and it's all good. Okay, so I am a urologist and my, my menopause education journey started probably like two years ago because I was getting very into female uh, sexual dysfunction and desire and it just, yes. Um, it just kept coming up about like, yeah, well, but after menopause, you're not gonna, you know, sex is gonna be bad. And it just kept being a theme. And like, if you guys don't know me by now, <laughs> I decided to like ask like, really, is it true? Um, so I started to do like research on it and look at the papers and I started to lecture on it. And I started to like lecture of like sex and menopause and like people are very interested. And my podcast is very interested and Instagram very interested. The, wor the world is interested. So basically women kept being like, tell me more. My doctor told me this. Most of the time, the things doctors tell women are wrong. Um, and I really felt like in order to have credibility talking to women about menopause and credibility saying like estrogen doesn't cause cancer, I needed to get a certification to like say like, I'm not just like some person selling supplements telling you estrogen's fine and then I'm gonna kill you. So I did the North American Menopause Society's certification where you basically just read their book. I don't have their book here. They have a menopause practice book, which is basically like textbook style. And then you take a test. And I did it with three friends. One was a gynecologist, two were my PAs because I wanted to train them. And then um, another urologist. So we had to study together and in that, our friend is Heather Hirsch, who is the Harvard doctor at, at uh, who does the menopause for Harvard. So I'm like, okay, my network's pretty good. I'm certified and now I know a lot about menopause. And it's, menopause is like having a moment. It was just in um, Vogue. Vogue just did an article on menopause. And here's the thing. It's a huge fucking market, you guys. Like there are 80 million women post-menopause um, it's absolutely huge and it's very similar to sex. It's not talked about. And the next interesting thing is there are 51% of women in the United States of America slash the world and doctors are not trained to take care of menopause. So even guys, guys are busy. Guys get paid to deliver babies and take out uteruses. That's not my quote. That's my guy friends quote. Um, they don't have a, an education. So what happened is in the late 90s, lots and lots of women used to be on hormones. Depending upon who you want to believe, like 40% of perimenopause, postmenopause women were on hormones, which was a lot, 40% plus. So it was like, odds are you had like a one in two chance you're gonna be on hormones. And people started promoting it as like, it's the fountain of youth, it's the elixir of life, it is good for everything. And the government basically wanted to say, does being on hormones decrease or prevent heart disease, right? So that was the big question. When you look at, 
And, and what I'm getting at here is why do we think estrogen's bad, right? So it's, and, and if you ask a woman, if a woman's like, I would never be on hormones because hormones are bad, estrogen causes cancer. Um, ask them why, ask them how do they know that, ask them to show you the data, they're gonna come up with nothing. They actually call this a zombie myth. Like the, the more you talk about it, like the bigger the zombie gets and if the zombie won't die, they call it a zombie, the zombie myth that estrogen causes cancer. But we have to understand where that came from, right? And once you understand where that came from, the argument that estrogen causes cancer kind of goes away. So Women's Health Initiative in the late 90s, billion dollar study, very huge. Looking for, it was a primary prevention study. This was not, does, do hormones help you with hot flashes, do anything like that. So in order to be enrolled, you had to have zero hot flashes, zero menopause symptoms, because they thought, well, you're gonna know if you're on the placebo or not because your hot flashes are gonna get better. Estrogen is incredibly good at getting rid of hot flashes. If you're on the correct dose, if you have hot flashes and you're on the correct dose of estrogen, your hot flashes should decrease by 80%. There is nothing better at decreasing hot flashes than estrogen. Now you ask, well, why are all these women on anti-anxiety meds anti and antidepressants for their hot flashes? because doctors don't get trained in menopause. So many, many people are put on these other meds that work okay for hot flashes, but not as well. So point being, you, didn't, you couldn't have any symptoms from menopause to be enrolled in the primary prevention trial. So a lot of people who are enrolled in the primary prevention trial were women who were 75 years old, because at some point, for most, but not all women, hot flashes will decline, but on average symptoms last for about 12 years. So all that bullshit of like, oh, just grin and bear it. It'll be done soon. No, it probably might be like more than a decade of your life. And that's common. We used to think it was short and temporary, but it's not. So we, now we took a bunch of 75 year olds who hadn't been on, hadn't had any hormones for 25 years we put them on estrogen and we wanted to see what happened. So what happened was a lot of those older women, not a lot, but statistically significant, had a stroke or heart issues with it. The theory now being your heart, your arteries harden when you don't take estrogen and then you threw estrogen on them, which destabilized the plaques and gave them these cardiac risks. So because of that, the trial was stopped. Estrogen's bad for you. In the estrogen progesterone arm, there was a little bit more breast cancer compared to placebo. So now estrogen kills you because it gives you heart attacks and strokes and it causes breast cancer. The media went wild. Absolutely. I wasn't old enough to, and like, wasn't, didn't care enough to like know this, but like the doctors who knew like phones off the hook in the doctor's office being like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Because of the Women's Health Initiative, about 70 to 80% of all women in this nation were immediately stopped from their hormones. That's how big the scare was that this was harming people. Fast forward over 20 years, we learned so much more about the Women's Health Initiative. Number one, don't put 75 year olds who haven't seen estrogen in 25 years on estrogen. It destabilizes the plaques that have already accumulated. So we know that younger women on estrogen don't have that heart disease that those old women got. We actually know that women between the ages of 50 and 60 who are put on hormones have on average a three-year extended life and much decreased heart disease. So basically you 
keep their endothelial lining healthy, elastic, from prevent it from hardening, and they actually have less heart disease. So what about breast cancer? So in order to discuss that, we have to talk about the estrogen and the estrogen progesterone people. So if you have a uterus and you're on hormone replacement therapy, you need progesterone because unopposed estrogen in the uterus can thicken the uterine lining, increasing the risk for uterine cancer. You guys are so smart and your doctors, so like you get this, but like describing this to the lay person is difficult. Five to 10% increased risk, not a five to 10% risk of cancer. So increased risk from baseline, but it's still significantly, statistically significant and it's easily preventable. We give you progesterone. So when you take hormone replacement therapy, you could be on estrogen alone if you've had a hysterectomy, or you can be on estrogen and progesterone if you still have a uterus. Okay, so that's the Women's Health Initiative. We've got two groups. The estrogen alone group had decreased breast cancer. Decreased breast cancer compared to placebo. That did not make the news. The estrogen progesterone had increased breast cancer compared to placebo. That made the news. Now estrogen causes breast cancer, but in the estrogen alone arm, it actually decreased the risk of breast cancer. More accurately, we could say the progesterone caused the breast cancer. There's something about the progesterone. Okay, well, let's look at the progesterone that they were on. They were on synthetic high-dosed uh, medroxy progesterone acetate, if I remember correctly. But it's not the progesterone that's used today. The progesterone we use today is micronized progesterone, which is as close to your natural progesterone as you can get. In the studies we have now, looking at micronized progesterone, there's no increased risk of breast cancer. So, okay, let's say it's the synthetic progesterone that increases this combo duo's risk of breast cancer compared to placebo. All right, let's say that. Some people say that. We'll say, you know what? It wasn't the estrogen because these guys had less breast cancer, but it's the progesterone. Is that accurate? No, because this was not a primary prevention study. This was not a randomized control trial. This was not a what decreases or increases breast cancer trial. And if you know from your studies, if you're gonna do those studies, you're gonna randomize your entrance into their already pre-existing risk of breast cancer, right? So the combo compared to placebo weren't age matched, risk matched, anything matched for breast cancer. And the placebo group in the estrogen progesterone, the placebo group, they were allowed to have a past history of estrogen use. Estrogen only decreases your risk of breast cancer. All right, so now we've got a legitimate study that shows combo compared to placebo increased risk of breast cancer, but the placebo has a history of estrogen use, which decreases the risk of breast cancer. In addition, if you compare these two placebo groups, this placebo group had a lower risk of breast cancer than this placebo group. So now we could say, well, the placebo decreased, this placebo caused breast cancer more than this placebo, which we won't say, because that's not how studies work. So this is all to, to give you the information to be like, when somebody comes at you and tells you that estrogen causes breast cancer, you can now say, that is so interesting. Will you show me the paper that says that estrogen causes breast cancer? 
And if they happen to show you the Women's Health Initiative from 2002, which they won't because they can't quote that, you can say, oh, that's interesting. Have you read all the follow-up studies analyzing how crappy that data is and that estrogen actually decreases breast cancer? Estrogen decreases breast cancer so much that the placebo arm in the estrogen progesterone group had less breast cancer than the placebo arm over there. Um, so now we're gonna say, we have my mom has breast cancer and my sister has breast cancer and my cousin has breast cancer. And I am not here to say that breast cancer is rare or it's not bad or anything like that. I am here to say that breast cancer is common. It's very common. And simple things we do every day increase our risk of breast cancer, such as drinking alcohol. If you were to take estrogen, let's believe that the progesterone causes breast, let's just, let's pretend that for a second. The increased risk of estrogen and progesterone in that study causing breast cancer is still less than the equivalent of having two alcoholic drinks a day. Where's our national campaign pulling alcohol off of shelves to decrease breast cancer in this country? If we were gonna be fair and, and pull things away from women because our, our job is to protect women against, you know, against everything. We're actually selling wine with like breast cancer ribbons on it and pink wine for breast cancer ribbons. And it literally causes eight different cancers. So when women come to me and they say, oh, I don't want any you know, increased risk of breast cancer. I'm like, how much do you drink? The first thing you should do, decrease drinking, decrease smoking. But this, the, my point is breast cancer is very, very common. And that's not cool. I wish it wasn't so. But our brains, and we know this from coaching because we do coaching, our brains are meaning-making machines. We need to know. I actually had a woman very recently have um, bladder cancer and she was very healthy. Um, and she's like, well, do you think it was because I was really into photography in the 90s and like the chemicals I used in the 90s for the photography? And I'm like, if that makes you feel like you found the reason, like grasp onto it. But like once you see our brains and people try to find the correlation equals causation, which as surgeons, we know that's not true. But people do that. And then the, so they'll say, as soon as I got breast cancer, I looked at what I was on. I was on, I was on birth control for a long time. It was probably the birth control. Like that's what our brains do. But we don't have the, if we're going to rely on studies and we're going to rely on science to help guide us into figuring out the human body. We have to separate that just because you are on estrogen at some point and breast cancer is common, correlation equals causation. So wanted to let you know, those are my stories of how the hell a urologist knows all this shit in the first place because my women are asking for it. So we actually prescribe hormones in our, my office now. The other thing about urology is I see tons of genital urinary syndrome of menopause, GSM. The old word for that is vaginal atrophy and nobody likes the word vaginal atrophy. So they changed it to GSM and GSM is all the more encompassing of what our bodies experience in the pelvis with menopause. So if you think that nobody taught you anything about menopause or menopause is just hot flashes, Right. Like think about your education. Think about women are 50 effing percent of the population. And how much did we learn about menopause in medical school? You all found like we all learned the ovarian cycle and periods like we teach some stuff. We just don't teach menopause. So GSM actually really explains what happens to the bladder. So low estrogen, we have estrogen receptors everywhere in our bodies, in our ears, in our joints, in our skin, in our 
vagina, in our bladder. You lower that estrogen and there are consequences to it. So yeah, somebody said you learned to be ashamed of it. We are an ageist society. Here's the other thing. This is my, this is my feminist soapbox. Sorry, this is for Jess. When you can't reproduce anymore, what's your, what's your, how are you gonna help society? And if you actually don't wanna sleep with this guy who you were sleeping with before, like that's not, you know, we should probably say those women are bad. Um, we are an ageist society, we are a sexist society. And I think those are two good reasons why we don't care about men. And we've shamed women about menopause. The other thing we've done is we've taken something that women naturally make, AKA estrogen, and we've made them afraid of it. And that is the absolute meanest, cruelest thing you can do to a person. It's like, I know it's not your fault that you, you got the ovaries, so they want to kill you. But estrogen kills you, wants to kill you. It's like, it's not true. It's not true that estrogen wants to kill you. Estrogen's actually freaking amazing. You know, we live longer than men. Estrogen's like one reason why. Ugh. So am I saying we should all be on HRT? <clears throat> no. <laughs> this is where I have to say, we're all individuals and we all need to figure out what's best for us. Um, but I can definitely go into that. Uh, I just wanna wrap up GSM because I need to talk about the bladder quick. So increased urgency, increased frequency, increased getting up at night, increased risk of urinary tract infections. The vagina actually is very acidic because of estrogen and then lactobacillus can grow. Quick UTI 101, just so you can help your moms and aunts with this. Estrogen makes it acidic um, and promotes lactobacillus, which makes lactic acid, which keeps it acidic. And when's it, when it's acidic, here's my vagina, the poop bugs can't, the poop bugs don't like it. And then they won't go up to the bladder. So this, the vagina actually acts as a barrier via acidity and its natural microbiome to prevent the bugs from getting to the UTI. That's the short answer. So you take the estrogen away and it becomes alkaline. And then the poop bugs are like, this is such a short journey and it's pleasant. So here's more UTIs. Vaginal estrogen decreases recurrent urinary tract infections by 68%, which is awesome. And like, actually in a ER throwaway journal, they were like, you see women who keep coming in with recurrent UTIs, you can give them vaginal estrogen. So let's break up real quick, before I go back to the question of should we all be on HRT? Let's go back to the difference between systemic hormones and vaginal or what I call pelvic hormones. So systemic hormones are all body. You guys know what systemic is. Try explaining this to people who don't know that they have a vulva. So systemic hormones mean all the body. So you're taking a product, either estrogen or estrogen progesterone, to give your whole body hormones. You can give estrogen in oral. That's not the recommended route. We can talk about that. Oral, patch, cream, the powerhouse, like you know what you're doing because you're super cool and you know all the cool menopause doctors, is the fem ring, which is a ring that you wear in your vagina because the fem ring counts for both systemic and vaginal estrogen. If you have a uterus, you need to protect your uterine lining with progesterone. Progest or a progestin is the word for like progesterone's a type of progestin. I had to learn this, I got corrected by a guy. <clears throat> so you can do that with oral microrized progesterone, which is the most common reason. Oral's fine with progesterone. Um, you take it at night, progesterone is actually a sleepy, sleepy medicine. So a lot of women's sleep is affected by menopause because of the low estrogen and progest the micronized progesterone really can help sleep. So oral progestin, 
um, IUD, again, if you want to be like the trendy powerhouse, I know all the things, femring with an IUD. IUD that has like a Marina or the, um, the newer, shorter acting one. But Marina, you can actually use for seven years for the progestin. It's five for pregnancy. Um, off label, but lots and lots of people do it. Plus, plus, if you want to go back to the Women's Health Initiative and still not love all of my arguments for why that non-micronized progesterone, synthetic progestin doesn't cause breast cancer, put the IUD in, then your body's still not seeing progesterone. So, so it's localized. So that's systemic. It's about, depending upon how much you take, there's many different doses. It's about 10 to 20%, uh, sorry, 10 to 20 times less than your birth control. Nobody thinks twice for being on birth control for 30 years. We know it's pretty damn safe. And then we would say, well, yeah, but let's just give you something that's like one-tenth of the dose to help you into menopause. And they're like, oh, hell no. Like, no. <laughs> so it's way less than birth control, you guys. Way, way, way less. Um, less risk of birth control has, I mean, getting pregnant, one might argue, is fraught with complications and difficulties and changes in your life. So like the risk of birth control and benefits, right? But like birth control can cause blood clots and issues like that. But just to let you know, menopause replacement therapy is much lower than what birth control is. Now let's go to vaginal estrogen. So vaginal estrogen is cream, pill, or ring. Remember fem ring is systemic, but estering is just the local low dose. Pelvic estrogen, it's not gonna go anywhere else. It's too low dose. And that's to prevent or treat GSM. So pain with sex, tearing, itching, vulvar irritation, dryness, uh, over increased overactive bladder, recurrent UTIs, all of the GSM umbrella of things that happen to you when you take the estrogen away. So then a lot of people will ask, well, if I'm on systemic hormones, do I still need to be on vaginal? About 30 to 50% of people still need to be on vaginal again, because systemic is still so freaking low dose. And I, I look at vulvas all day long. And some people's vulva tissue looks fantastic and they have no symptoms. I'm not gonna put her on a vaginal estrogen product. If you're just gonna do pelvic estrogen, it doesn't need progesterone. That's the other thing for you guys to know. Because it, one year of vaginal estrogen cream is equivalent to one hormone replacement therapy pill. That's how low dose vaginal estrogen is. Vaginal estrogen is so low dose that you can be on it if you've had breast cancer and you can be on it if you currently have breast cancer. There's ACOG papers on this saying quality of life is so much improved for these people that it's okay and it's so stinking low dose. There is no nothing to suggest that there's a breast cancer recurrence. If you even wanna believe that estrogen causes breast cancer. Again, it's kind of these circular arguments we get into like, oh, remember we're afraid of it? Okay, well, if we're afraid of it, we've done the studies and it doesn't increase your risk of breast cancer. So going to the question of, should we all be on HRT? Hormone replacement therapy is FDA approved for vasomotor symptoms of menopause, hot flashes, night sweats, sleep dis disturbances. It's also FDA approved for uh, osteoporosis and prevent, so prevention of bone loss in like high risk individuals, I think is how it's written. Um, it's FDA approved for GSM. 
There's one other FDA approval. I'm blanking on it. I know there's four. Um, so that's the argument of like, what if you're, let's say you're 54, average age of menopause. I'm just throwing a patient out. Let's say you're 54, average age of menopause is 51 in the United States. Remember, menopause is a day. Let's, let's go back because we never learned this in med school. Menopause is a day. The day that you are that you have menopause is 366 days after your last period. So one full year, no periods, boom. That's the day of menopause. You wake up tomorrow, now you're post-menopause, technically. But we have such poor education. The women, I see women all the time, they're like, oh, I went through menopause, or it's done. It's not, it's not done. You have low estrogen forever now, and there are things that happen. I think consequences is too strong of a word. There are things that happen because of low estrogen. You know that vertigo is higher in postmenopause women because there's estrogen receptors in our ear and it gets messed up, so there's more vertigo. All the things, let alone hair and nails because we lose our collagen and then we go get Botox. Um, so you can go on it for vanity. But going back to the question of, is should everybody just go on hormones? A lot of my menopause expert friends that I talk to, I ask them this because I put them on my podcast and I ask them this question. Because my Western medicine, if you haven't noticed, we like to treat disease. We're stinking bad at preventing disease, right? So the question is, should I go on hormones to prevent osteoporosis? The ortho people here know the data on hip fractures, you guys. The risk of a hip fracture and not recovering and dying after a hip fracture is is devastating. Like, but we don't care about the 80 year olds, right? So like, if you look at, you can look at America on the grave graphs, you can look at America when we pulled everybody off hormones. And then you can look at the rate of hip osteoporotic hip fractures in this country skyrockets. Um, so say you just want to, my mom has osteoporosis. I'm a thin white female. I'm the highest ripping. I don't smoke. But like I have the highest risk for osteoporosis, right? Which can be devastating. So a lot of the experts will say, yes, you can absolutely go on preventative hormones. Um, now, can you go to the average doctor and convince the average doctor that you want to go on hormones? Unfortunately, I would say not usually, unless you have somebody who treats menopause a lot, because they'll be like, why do you want to do that? Because Western medicine, we don't prevent things, you guys. We treat disease once it shows up. Let's talk about sex for a second. Um, yeah, major healthcare costs with hip fractures, major, major mortality with hip fractures. Um, also, I mean, the risk of recurrent UTI in the elderly women and how many elderly women get UTIs, get septic and end up dying. Like nobody's talking about this. This is all, that's all estrogen. Estrogen prevents urinary tract infections. So if you, get, you can quickly become very passionate about our shitty job of taking care of women <laughs> when you start learning about menopause. So if you, let's talk about sex. So is it true that when you go through menopause, you have no desire and you have a shitty sex life? And is it because of the hormones, right? That's the other question. We love being scientists, it's so fun. So the data says the two biggest predictors of women being sexually active post-menopause is number one, availability of partner. You don't have somebody around who's like ready and willing and is there to have sex with, you're not sexually active. So I can't change that. <laughs> I, I don't wanna change that for a lot of people. 
that's that's something you, I can't change. Number two is her vasomotor symptoms of menopause. If you're not sleeping and you're grouchy, and remember the rate of anxiety and depression in women skyrockets, that you're at your biggest risk for that in your 40s and 50s, which is the perimenopause transition. Go back to perimenopause for a second. What the hell is perimenopause? Perimenopause is the window of 10 years surrounding menopause. It can start in your late 30s, sometimes, rarely, but sometimes earlier. Definitely in the 40s. My sleep's just not as good. I just feel more anxious. I'm just kind of moody. It's reverse puberty, you guys. So puberty is like, I'm trying to get online. I'm trying to get regular periods, I'm trying to like get there. I'm moody as hell. My skin's horrible. Perimenopause. I skipped a period, my estrogen goes super high because it's trying to get an egg to release. Now it's super low. Now I'm bleeding for a whole month straight. Is reverse puberty. Those organs and those hormones are coming offline. So increased anxiety, depression, vasomotor symptoms, sleeping is the second most common reason that women stop having sex. What treats this? Estrogen. So can I say estrogen helps you have better sex? Pro if I want to be like sensationalist, I could be like, yes, but by proxy it does because it's treating one of the two most common reasons that women stop having sex in the perimenopause region or time, um, which I, I mean, I think that's amazing news. But here's what else we know, just to, to beat on sex for a little bit more. There are many women, aka the baby boomers, I, why my mom and her friends are pissed as hell that they're suffering. Because remember, we can't just put 75 year olds back on estrogen. We actually learned that pretty well from the Women's Health Initiative study. So if you have not been, if you're post-menopause and it's been about 10 years, 10 years is the window of safety because now your arteries are hardened basically, which sounds shitty and sounds like you should be on estrogen. So it doesn't happen. But you can't just start these 70 year olds on estrogen, but that's when they're falling, their memory. Oh, should we talk about the brain? So does being on hormones decrease the risk of Alzheimer's? We think so. You're not gonna see a primary prevention trial. It hasn't been done, but we have plenty of population controlled studies, specifically Kaiser, right? Cause Kaiser has really good records. And so Kaiser can look at rate of new diagnoses and they have a paper out that like, if you've had hormone replacement therapy versus if you haven't had hormone replacement therapy and your chance or your risk of having a new diagnosis of any neurologic disorder. So they looked at atypical memory loss, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other you know, neuromuscular things. Estrogen was protective in those population-based studies. Now again, not a randomized placebo controlled. I can't give you that at this time but there is data to suggest that it decreases your risk of memory loss and Alzheimer's. Why the baby boomers aren't pissed? I think it's just because they don't have any education on it. Um, okay, so let's, did I answer all the questions about all that? Okay, we will go back. Do, 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 do. Did, we, did I answer the question about should we all be on hormone replacement therapy? If you have symptoms, yes, go on a low dose. You can always adjust it. It's not one size fits all. There's many, many different doses. Some women need higher estrogen. Some can get by with just a teeny little bit. Um, there's no age at which you have to stop. 
So I have so many women come in. I had this 72 year old who came in. She was miserable because her nurse practitioner just pulled her off her hormones saying it's been long enough. They kind of do the like, it's been long enough wave. Like you're, you're irrelevant now, or maybe it's risky now. There's no data to say if you've done well on hormones that you have to stop by a certain age. So this freaking woman at age 72 is having hot flashes, night sweats and sleep. She's going through perimenopause at age 72 because her nurse practitioner just threw her off her hormones. And I'm like, there's no data to say you need to stop your hormones. I'm like, show me the data. And then I'll agree with you. But if you can't show me the data, don't just pull these people off of hormones. She ended up going back on her hormones and was like, thank you so much. Sorry, you had to meet a urologist to get back on your freaking hormones. Okay. Yeah, here's a, here's a great question. I'm definitely perimenopausal. I was told by my OB-GYN to stay on birth control until my symptoms get too bad. Now I'm really questioning that. So birth control pills are hormones. They're actually higher hormones than, than your hormone replacement therapy dose. It's perfectly fine. A lot of people in the perimenopause area will be put on birth control pills instead of hormone replacement therapy. Why, why, right? Okay, to a couple of reasons. Number one, who's comfortable with birth control pills? Many, many, many doctors, right? Primary care guys, they're very comfortable with birth control pills, which remember is like 10 to 20% higher dose than times higher dose than hormone replacement therapy. So number one, they're comfortable with it. Number two, it's hormones. And what it does is it plat it kind of smooths out that reverse puberty treadmill, right? It just kind of gives you a steady state, which is your brain and your hot flash departments, like, thank you. So they're comfortable with it. It's acceptable for menopause use or for perimenopause symptoms. Number three, perimenopause people can still get pregnant. Hormone replacement therapy doesn't prevent pregnancy. Birth control pills prevent pregnancy. It's a different type of estrogen, right? Basically. So at a much higher dose. So we still have to care about pregnancy in the perimenopause woman. I can't just put her on hormone replacement therapy and she, now she's pregnant, right? So a couple of, if you don't have a uterus, you can just switch to hormone replacement therapy if you want. If you're like, I'd like to be on a lower dose and not be on birth control. Um, if you have an IUD, great. There's your birth control. You can just get on an estrogen patch or cream or femring. That's fine. So yeah, it's not crazy to be on birth control in the perimenopause. At some point, they're probably, you, you don't need the birth control. You should probably be on a lower dose. Don't get me started on natural, but I'm going to say like maybe a more natural hormone replacement therapy than birth control. Um, What's the deal with bioidentical? Let's talk about that. So if you go on the internet, you're gonna be marketed to by all these people who are bioidentical, bioidentical, bioidentical. What bioidentical means is they can't tell if it's taken from you or it's taken from this factory where they made it out of yams. So bioidentical is really like made of, out of vegetables in a factory. It's synthetic, but bioidentical. So they're calling something natural, synthetic, and it, it confuses everybody because that's the point, because we took all the women off of hormones and now we're scared shitless to go on hormones. So if we call it bioidentical, it feels a lot better to us and it feels natural and it feels okay and it feels safer. So now you'll get on it. So it's kind of like the gateway word to like get women on hormones, even though there's no data to say that like one type is better that, that the Premarin from, you know, the horses, 
horse lovers don't love Premarin. It stands for pregnant mare's urine. That's where they get it from. But a horse is a hell of a lot more identical to you than a yam is in a factory. I get off my soapbox. But like that, it's a marketing, it's like putting natural on a granola bar. And they're like, well, that feels really good. That's probably good for me because it says natural on it. It's like, it's, natural is meaningless. It's a marketing term. Bioidentical is a marketing term. So if somebody says, well, come to me and pay me $5,000 for your labs and your bioidentical hormones, just know you're being marketed to. Because doctors do such a shitty job of taking care of menopause, women are suffering and they're being forced into the hands of the for-profit come to me with my natural, all the things, I'll swab your cheek and give you eight pages of labs and give you pellets and it'll cost you thousands of dollars. And it's like, this stuff is cheap. It's available, insurance covers it. Your doctor should be able to handle this. It is, a urologist knows how to do it. Like, and she just taught herself. It's not hard, but women are suffering. Women are looking for relief and they're going into these pill mill hormone natural places. You know how many, DMs I get on Instagram from like the women who are on pellets and it's costing them thousands of dollars and they're like, what can I do to get off of pellets? Pellets are not FDA approved. They're certainly not covered by insurance. There's higher risk of side effects with pellets because it's a much higher dose. Um, we're seeing a lot. So why do women love being on their testosterone pellets? Because you're giving them a steroid that's super therapeutic and they're freaking loving it what happens? They get just like any steroid, you get tolerant, you get dependent on it. The same dose doesn't work as much anymore. You have to keep going higher. Now my voice has changed. My clitoris is big and it's irreversible. So I say no to pellets for many reasons. Number one, it should be cheaper. Number two, uh, it has a higher risk of side effects. The national guidelines say whenever possible, don't use compounded. Now we have to use compounded or male doses, dose to female doses when we do testosterone. You're either gonna love me or hate me after this lecture. <laughs> What's the deal with testosterone? Okay, so pop quiz. Oh, so a pellet is basically like a little piece of bird seed that gets injected usually in your butt or in your thigh. Um, and it's, a it's like a slow release of hormones. Um, so what's the deal with testosterone? Pop quiz. Who, is there more testosterone or estrogen in your body when you're 25 years old as a female, ovary-bearing human? <clears throat> the answer is it's equal. But what did we do? We gendered hormones. What the fuck? So we gendered hormones and we said testosterone is the male hormone and estrogen is the female hormone. So now why would I give you testosterone and perimenopause and menopause? Because you never had much of it anyways, and it's for the men. Not true. We actually have tons of testosterone, equal to estrogen, depending upon where you are in your cycle in your 20s. Ovaries make testosterone. We think it has an important role in muscles, gaining them and keeping them, in bone health, in cognitive, in brain health, in your get up and go energy spark for life, and in your sex drive, which we can get into desire and all that long-term separate from testosterone. But if there's a hormone that can be blamed for spontaneous sexual desire, it is testosterone. So what do we do? Well, we've gendered it. So now doctors don't think that women ever had it, ever lost it or ever need it replaced. 
We also have an FDA that if I want to make a new testosterone product for a male, it's going to cost me about $100 million to do the studies to say, look at my new formulation. If I want to make a testosterone product for females, which remember is a lower dose, it's one-tenth the dose of a male dose, the FDA said, that's nice. We can't cause any harm to the women. It'll cost you $1 billion. And then they said, well, you know what we're going to have to charge cost that you know what the product's going to cost it has it's a billion dollars to get it on the market and testosterone is a natural occurring chemical in the universe so you can't even effing patent it that's why testosterone is so dirt cheap so it's not patented we we didn't make up testosterone so oh the fda should definitely have a testosterone product for women that's why the FDA doesn't have a testosterone product for women because they said it'll be a billion dollars. Thank you very much. Nobody will want to pay for that product. Insurance isn't going to give you your testosterone because insurance thinks that it's a male hormone, right? So that's why we don't have a female testosterone product. But in the department, the sexual medicine is actually the forerunner on this because in the department of desire, and we need the women to sleep with the men, remember? That keeps everybody happy, especially the men. We have tons of data that says in some women, not all, because remember desire is multifaceted, many different reasons that you don't have the desire to sleep with your partner. One of them is testosterone. One might argue you don't ever need spontaneous desire. You can just have a great sex life without spontaneous desire. That's like the, my whole freaking platform. Um, but if you want some spontaneous desire because it feels good and you like to think about it, that's fine. We actually have great data to show that testosterone does that for a good subset of women, not everybody, because we're all unique individuals. So we actually have guidelines on dosing testosterone for women for low desire. Now, those women will say, I need this for low desire, but I also would like to maintain my muscle mass because I'm a triathlete and want to keep being fit and healthy. I also want to protect my bones. And you know, if I can keep my brain functioning well, that'd be nice too. We just don't have the data on those other roles of testosterone in women to have that be an air quotes excuse. But if you look at um, a lot of kind of experts in hormone replacement therapy, estrogen, testosterone, a progestin if you need it for your uterus. Um, did I answer the testosterone on that one? Um, birth control pill make me very nauseated. Are the preventative hormones at lower doses easier to tolerate? Yeah, so birth control is oral, right? Um, you can certainly try a patch. Again, hormone replacement therapy, oral, we, we want to avoid first pass metabolism if we can, right? So first pass metabolism might be where the nausea is coming from. Um, so I tried the patch or the cream or the femring because now you're a rock star and knows if you go online to femring, Google femring, you can get a $25 coupon. Femring lasts you three months. Femring in and of itself, cash at Target's like $500. This shit's expensive, which is insane for a medication you're going to be on for like 30 plus years. Um, so I would try to avoid first pass metabolism, but getting back to like why we don't do hormone replacement therapy oral, we can, it's dirt cheap, but they think there is a higher risk of blood clot, liver disease, um, increasing your triglycerides. So if you have high triglycerides, it's a contraindication. Contraindications to hormone replacement therapy, active breast cancer, previous history of breast cancer, unless you're in a research study, um, 
unprovoked blood clot. Now there is, there are some menopause experts that will give you transdermal estrogen because you're avoiding first pass metabolism. Um, and that's fine. So, but a lot of people will be told like, because I have a clotting disorder or because I had a clot in pregnancy, which could be uh, described as probably unprovoked. Um, I can't ever be on estrogen. It's not technically true. You just can't be on oral estrogen because you don't want the first pass metabolism. So that's what I would say for, I'd stay, go start at a low dose and not be oral and see if you can get it. A lot of women too, they say they'll have migraines on birth control pills and they get on the proper hormone replacement therapy dose and they don't have migraines. But a lot of people are afraid of that um, because of the estrogen. Let's see what else. I'm already losing my words, having mild uh, hot flashes at night. Yeah, yeah. I'm terrified of osteoporosis. I'm trying so hard to get my vitamin D up. Oh, yeah, no joke. Poster child for osteoporosis, terrified of a hip fracture. Yeah. Um, I have a I have a friend in town who healthy postmenopausal, brilliant physician, super into studies. Um, she got osteoporosis. She had a DEXA scan showing oste I think osteoporosis at least in one area, and her uh, her husband is a orthopedic surgeon. And he's like, get this woman on estrogen, and she's like, no, I don't want breast cancer. And they had like a big back and forth. We're like, you're gonna pay the consequences of a hip fracture. May it not 100%, but like it's high, it's over 50%. Um, okay, one more question at the bottom. Oh, thank you. Can I mention what low T means for men and what to do about it? Asking for a friend, yes. So news alert, men's hormones go down as they age, just like women's do. If, if men's, testicles shriveled up at age 50, there'd be a national vaccine, you guys. And like, I didn't come up with that. That's from Rachel Rubin. And I love that quote so much. I love saying it. Um, yeah, if men just went boom, low T at 50, here's the other deal. The honor of being a urologist, as opposed to the gynes, because the gynes don't treat men. They don't see how men are treated. I see how men are treated every single day because I treat them. And I'm not like, I'm so sorry that your testosterone is 150, which is low for men. That's natural, you know? And you should just try to like get some cooler sheets and a fan and like just try to eat a little bit less. And like, you know, it's natural. Just live, it'll only be low for like the rest of your life. It's fine, right? It's fine. Your dad had low testosterone, we didn't treat him. Like we never freaking say that to men. We never say all that shit that just came out of my mouth is what we tell women about low hormones. We never say that to men. So low T, if, if the low testosterone, you have to check the testosterone twice just to make sure it's like consistently low. That's like an insurance thing. Um, ideal, check your male's testosterone before 9 a.m. because that's when it's supposed to be the highest because it naturally goes down during the day because of circadian rhythms. Natural things to increase testosterone, high intensity uh, interval training, HIIT training is, has, data to that it increases testosterone. Um, weightlifting, muscle mass, uh, get rid of the alcohol, get rid of cigarettes, get rid of pot, get rid of any endocrine disruptors, because um, those all, all decrease testosterone. Um, adequate sleep, people shift workers have really messed up hormones because their circadian rhythms messed up. But here's the deal. So I was talking to my friend who's a urologist and she is, she specializes in male health. 
in male health and male hormones. And we were kind of talking about like these natural ways to get your testosterone up. And she's like, yeah, but if he has such low energy that he can't even like get to the gym, like treat him for a little bit, get him to the gym, get him living a healthier lifestyle. And then you can try to wean off of the testosterone because he's gotten healthier in the process. Now, the big, the big question is when you give somebody exogenous hormones, if their testicles are working, the testicles are now going to go on holiday because they're like, thanks, you're just getting it on the side. I don't need to do my job. Right. And the classic example of that is really high dose with like bodybuilders, right? They have very, very small testicles that go offline and don't work again. So like, that's always my worry of like, if once you go on testosterone, you might not be able to get back off, but the pros like have like weaning protocols to try to get you back off. Again, I'm talking in men whose testicles can function their whole life. I'm not talking about ovaries, but ovaries will produce testosterone longer than they produce estrogen. This is important because we're like, why am I getting the hair chin hair stuff? And like, you'll notice some women are starting to get like male pattern balding because they actually have, and I hate this word, but like testosterone dominance. I hate, I hate even the word hormone dominance coming out of my mouth. Cause again, it's a marketing term to scare people to make you buy things, but like testosterone, you'll see a, a relative testosterone dominance because your estrogen's gone away, but your ovaries are still making testosterone. So you'll see that start to happen in some people, not everybody. But um, the testosterone effect of, say you surgically remove your ovaries, the testosterone effect can get can be like pretty fast. You just feel like absolute shit because it's like immediate castration versus the menopause transitions, kind of a nice slower thing to do. So personally, my personal opinion is um, I went to my doctor a couple of years ago, I lived in town for like five years before having a primary care doctor. Then I just was like, I should probably get one for like when my kid gives me pink eye or something. So I went to my kids when they, we go to primary care and I'm like, just, and she knows who I am. Cause there's not a lot of female urologists around. And I'm like, just so you know, when I'm of the age, I'm going to need all the things. Cause it's probably not good for me to give myself my own hormones. And this was even before I got NAM certified. And she literally was like, well, you know, there's risks and benefits and we'll see and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, I literally see women suffer because of no hormones every single day of my career. My hunch is all urologists do. They just don't know it's because of low hormones. But you're like, I have these women come in, they've got no sex drive. They've got recurrent UTIs. They've got horrible leaky and overactive bladders. Like it's all hormones is why not you can have overactive bladder for other reasons, but it skyrockets after menopause. The trigone of the bladder, for those fortunate enough to actually scope in the bladder and look at it, you can see this beautiful, I call it beautiful, um, look to a well estrogenized trigone. You don't see that in, in postmenopause women. So yeah. Oh, my family practice doctor was terrified to leave me on OCP during perimenopause. I'll be doing some education with him. Yes, do. The, Increased risk of blood clots on women over 35 on birth control pills. We have that data, right? And so that might be where they're worried. Um, but if you're not smoking and you, it's, it's overweight and smoking are the two correlates with the blood clots with the birth control, if my memory serves me. So it's like, if you're as healthy as you possibly can be, right? I think for sure, if we're smoking cigarettes, I don't want to assume maybe you guys are smoking cigarettes, um, but 
that they're they're probably not going to let you be on birth control pill. It's such a higher dose, right? And and I think for menopause too, but it's like if you're smoking cigarettes, come on, it's just increasing your risk of everything, including me giving you hormones. So don't smoke cigarettes. <laughs> um, so I had a friend who she's a surgeon, and we were in the sorry for people who've heard this story. We were in the surgeon's lounge, and this was like a year ago, and she was like. Oh, I'm, she was like wearing a Holter monitor or something like that because she was seeing cardiology for her heart palpitations. We have not talked about heart palpitations. This is an atypical, it's actually pretty common, just not talked about symptom of perimenopause is heart palpitations. So she's like, yeah, I'm seeing the cardiologist because I'm having these horrible heart palpitations. They're so bad. I don't feel safe driving my kids in the car. That's how worried I am about these. And so she, and I'm like, get a workup, you know, make sure your heart's okay. Workup's totally clean. Nothing's wrong with her heart. And I'm like, well, did you know that heart palpitations is a sign of perimenopause? And maybe you should just try to get on some hormones, see what happens. And she's like, nobody ever said that. She went to her primary care for heart palpitations. They didn't mention it. She got a thorough, complete cardiology workup. Nobody mentioned it. The cardiologists don't know that this is a perimenopause symptom. So she goes and she's still having periods, can still get pregnant. So she was put on birth control pills. Heart palpitations completely went away, you guys. Completely went away. She comes and sees me and she's like, why did I have to run into you in the surgeon's lounge to fix this problem? And I'm like, because nobody knows anything about perimenopause and menopause. It's a damn disgrace. We're spending... Don't get me wrong, we should all get heart workups when appropriate. Like we don't want to miss anything. We're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on these workups. And then we're telling women that they're normal. So guess what happens when you're having horrible hot, uh, heart palpitations, you don't even feel safe driving your kids around. And then doctors tell you you're normal. You might tend to think you're going crazy. And how many women are we doing that to? Okay, more questions. What if you're perimenopausal on birth control and still having heart palpitations and night sweats? It seems like we shouldn't be having symptoms. You might be, you, you might need to, you might be need a higher dose. Like probably the experts will say switch to hormone replacement therapy and titrate up. If you're on the right amount of hormones to prevent night, uh, hot flashes and night sweats, they should get better by about 80%. So it might be time to be like, Oral, oral progesterone. The, the only pro, one of the problems with not being on a birth control in the perimenopause and just switching to hormone replacement therapy is you're going to, you're going to bleed. Right. And you, perimenopause is already fraught with irregular periods, really heavy periods, all this stuff. So they put you on oral contraceptive pills to try to smooth that bleeding out. How many women in perimenopause have these crazy periods and nobody ever told, tells them that like, this is very common. I don't want to say normal, but very common, right? Because we're skipping an ovulatory cycle. Now we didn't bleed for two months. Now we've got a really heavy period. Like this is all just perimenopause, you guys. It's explainable. But women think they're crazy because nobody's told them like, oh yeah, no, this is just your, your ovaries going offline. And so it's a freaking wackadoo for a while. Um, so you could try to stop the, to not have the bleeding. If the bleeding bothers you, you could try an IUD to get that off. So again, again, answering these questions, like it's pretty obvious that this is not one size fits all. Everybody's gonna need a little bit of tweaking 
with stuff and trying and failing and trying something else. And I think that's where medicine, again, I'm just bashing on medicine today, like, sorry, but like, oh, this, well, the standard thing didn't work. So, right. Or like, or even patients where they're like, it didn't work. So I gave up. It's like, no, 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 that means you just have to try the second one and you just gotta try the higher dose and you gotta try the different formulation. You gotta try the vaginal ring. And like, until you've been figuring it out and it can change over time, right? But um, it's gonna set you up for like decades of health. And I, again, you will detect a slight pro-hormone bias in my presentation today. Um, it's not right for everybody, right? Um, but in many, many, many most cases, it's fine. We put people with, uh, with you know, sisters who've had breast cancer, first degree relative with breast cancer is not a contraindication to hormone replacement therapy, even though the universe thinks it is. Why? Because we've got amazing data that says estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer. Let me show you this. I literally just printed this out because I'm going to do a podcast on it. Menopause hormone therapy formulations and breast cancer risk. <laughs> like there's so much data that it's fine. And uh, although menopause hormone therapy use appears to be associated with an overall increased risk of breast cancer, this risk appears predominantly mediated through formulations containing synthetic progestins. Well, the Women's Health Initiative told us this 20 years ago, but we're still writing papers on it because we're still not getting the word out. So this paper came out in 2022. And I just told you that that's what we found out 20 years ago. So this isn't happening fast, but at least it's happening. Okay, so how do we find a doc who's comfortable helping us make these decisions? I have no one now certified within 200 miles. Oh God, okay. Um, where do you live? <laughs> I will find you places. Um, the best thing to do and the best thing, a very good thing to do is educate yourself as much as you can. I truly believe when you're informed and you go into your doc, you guys know this, right? Like when you get like a smart, educated person who's like, okay, doc, I'll use mine for an example. Okay, doc, I, uh, I've got overactive bladder, the vaginal estrogen, I'm already on it. It's not helping. I don't want the long-term side effects of the anticholinergics. And I think Botox sounds awesome. Can we do that? I'm like, Botox. Like you get an educated person who's like responsible and like understands the risks and like, I want to try this. And the other thing you do is you're like, let's just try this for three months. Let's try this for three months. We can always change it. Um, because I, so, so many people, I, and again, this is all just like what I see every day, but so many people are like, should I go on hormones or shouldn't I? Oh, should I or shouldn't I? Now in the coaching world, that's called uh, indulging in indecision, right? Of like, you could just try it and you could just stop it. Or you could just try it and you could just go up on the dose or down on the dose. Or you could just stop it, right? Like, that's fine. Just know you have increased risk of, oh, this is a fun one. What do you have an increased risk of when you are postmenopause and you don't go on hormones? Brain issues heart disease, diabetes, middle, middle belly weight gain, uh, colon cancer, estrogen use, hormone replacement therapy decreases your risk of colon cancer. Um, 
what else? General urinary syndrome of menopause. I know there's more, but there are many, many, many good reasons to be on hormone replacement therapy. Um, so if you're on Instagram, YouTube, I think she's on TikTok. She's ever, she's got a podcast, Health by Heather Hirsch. Heather Hirsch is the Harvard menopause doc and she's outspoken and she does so much patient education on social media. Um, so she's at Harvard and she's like my go-to for like the tricky situations of like, I've got a lady who thinks she maybe had a TIA, but like they don't know, but she's on hormones and they want her to stop. And like, she'd like to not stop. Like I ask her like the very technical, like uh, stroke and hormones aren't, they get a little icky with that. But I'm like, was it really a TIA? Can we prove it? Do we know? What are your risks of stopping hormone replacement therapy? Um, so she's, she's brilliant. She's on the East Coast. Highly recommend her. As far as like finding somebody, I would just, truthfully, I think that some nurse practitioners do better jobs than physicians. I said it. Um, I just, I think we have such a patriarchal medical system where nobody gets taught and then, and then we don't update our dogma, right? Like this is just all medicine and it's stupid, silly things. We don't update our dogma. So we've got this dogma that made CNN in 2001 saying estrogen caused cancer. So we do stupid stuff like tear people off of hormones. Um, I think that's an hour. I just talked for an hour. I love you all. Uh, feel free to DM me or leave your note in the room one Facebook group if you have more questions. I didn't even realize it's eight o'clock. <laughs> all right. Love you so much. I'll see you next time.